Well, good morning, church. Welcome to our online service. Grateful to be with you here uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're actually going to be in Luke uh, chapter 2 this morning. And so um, grab your Bibles. We're going to get there here in a minute. We're continuing in in our doctrine series where we're looking at just core foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. We've looked at the revelation of God's word. We've looked at the Trinity. We've looked at... um, We've looked at uh, the fall of man. We've looked at creation. uh, And God has been uh, showing us all along the way that he is in control, that he has us, and that he's caring for us, is that he is sovereign. And uh, this morning, we are going to be looking at the doctrine of the incarnation, uh, one of the core, principal, foundational doctrines of our faith, that without it, uh, we don't have a savior. Without it, we don't have a hope. Um, and so as I was preparing for this message, I, I got to thinking, uh, about 12 years ago, um, when my very first daughter, Isabel was born. And so she was born on October 17th, 2008. And it's a day that I will never forget. It was, um, a day where I was uh, scared. I was unsure. I was thrilled. I was excited. I was terrified. I was, um, I was all of these emotions just sort of wrapped into one. I just, it's, it's hard to really put it into words of all that you're anticipating, all the things you just simply don't know that lie ahead, um, all the things you're excited for that you've been hoping for are culminating in this moment of the arrival of your first child. Um, and Izzy's birth was, uh, was, was exciting on multiple fronts. Uh, one, it was it, it did not go as planned, and so there was tremendous anxiety and fear that happened during the during the birth of Isabel. So Ashley, my wife, she was in labor for hours and hours and hours. There were some complications. Doctor made the call. I think it was eight hours into labor, uh, she had to go have an emergency C-section. Uh, Ashley's heart rate dropped, baby's heart rate dropped. And so I'm sitting here uh, as a, I I think I was 23 years old, uh, just terrified. I'm not, I don't, I feel helpless. I don't know what's going on. Ashley gets whirled off to the uh, OR. I'm following behind and um, we're in the OR and uh, they, they, they get Izzy, everything's fine. They stabilize Ashley. And I'll never forget this moment. It was this incredible moment where um, Isabel is born, uh, the doctor has her, and as he's delivering her, uh, he begins to sing, uh, How Great Is Our God. They're in the OR. And so he's singing a worship song, How Great Is Our God, as he's bringing this new life um, out into this world. And uh, I start singing with him. Some nurses chime in that are in the OR and we're just worshiping the Lord, singing how great is our God as Izzy's being brought into the world. And I'm weeping, Ashley's weeping. Um, He hands Izzy to the nurse um, and then I go over and meet the nurse. And I just remember that moment. The nurse hands me Isabel for the very first time and I'm holding this tiny, tiny little baby. um, And there's still a chorus going of how great is our God. And I just, I remember in that moment looking down at this tiny little life uh, 
she's crying, she's, her eyes aren't open yet. Um, she's kind of stiffened up, right, as newborn babies are. Um, get, get her all swaddled up. And I remember thinking, this is how our Lord came. Like, this is how he came. Um, weak and seemingly helpless and frail and fragile and vulnerable and humble and needy. Um, that, that God came like this. And that's a moment that I will never, ever forget. Um, and it brought the, the idea of the incarnation that much closer to me personally, thinking, I can't believe that God came to us like this, like a baby, um, weak and helpless. And I know that every Christmas we celebrate uh, that Jesus was God becoming a man. But to actually stop and consider that and to think on that and what that means for human history and for the meaning of human life is incredibly important. See, the birth of Jesus is the most important birth in the history of the world. History is divided by it. We have B.C., before Christ, and we have A.D., the year of our Lord. It marks our calendar. It marks time. Everything revolves around the birth of this man, this baby that came, Jesus of Nazareth. Um, and we talk about Jesus every single week since we began as a church because he, he's the point of it all. He's the climax of the story of redemption. He's our hope. He is our uh, savior. He is our Lord. He is our all in all. And so um, as we jump in and look at this important doctrine of God becoming man, uh, let's ask ourselves this question. What does incarnation mean? Incarnation. What does that mean? It's the incarnation of God. What is incarnation? It's a, it's a big Latin word, right? And so um, we are all from Texas. Well, maybe you're watching, you're not from Texas, but uh, we have a word similar to this. Um, and many of you have heard it. Many of you order at a restaurant and it's carne asada, right? Incarnation has that same root word, carne. And what is carne asada? It just means uh, glorious, wonderful, holy, marinated meat that you eat and put in a tortilla and cut up and it's delicious and you should order it at a Mexican restaurant, uh, preferably this afternoon if you can help it. And so incarnation, carne, has that word in it. it just It means meat, right? And so we think fajitas, we think carne asada. And so really, if you're going to get down to the, the root of it here, uh, fajitas and carne asada reveal the holiness of God because it's just, it's baked in there, right? It's, so it's part of the word. It's, it should invoke worship in us. And it certainly does for us as Texans. So carne means meat or uh, translated in the scriptures, flesh, right? Um, and so what we see here is that Jesus is God, the incarnation of God, is that God came into human history, came into our world and our space in the flesh, 
with meat on his bones, right? Carne, incarnation. Um, and so this is not saying, so let's be clear here, uh, this doctrine is not saying that a human being became God. It's not saying that. That's the lie uh, that was first told by Satan in the garden. It says, you, God's holding out on you and you can become like God. He, Satan told the very first humans, our parents, you can be like God. You can do this and God's holding out on you. The very first lie propagated in the Old Testament, at, in the garden at the very beginning, was that um, man can become a god. And you should try to do that. And the world should revolve around you. You should have your preferences, your wants, your desires be paramount above all else. That's the first lie that the enemy told us, that Satan told us. Um, that is not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the incarnation teaches us. In fact, there are uh, sects of, uh, of world religions that teach that man becomes a god. Uh, Mormonism is one of those uh, that adheres to that. The, the Bible doesn't teach that. It is the incarnation is not that someone became God. It's that God became someone. That God became a human being. That God stepped into our place and time. That God put on meat, flesh, and dwelt among us. Uh, John Calvin uses a beautiful word uh, and a beautiful way to describe this. And he uses this language and he says that in the incarnation, God accommodates us. I think that's a really uh, interesting way of describing the incarnation. I really love that language. Uh, that Jesus, uh, Jesus, God in the flesh, God coming as a baby, growing, living, existing as you and I did in the flesh is accommodating us in the same way a good mom or dad accommodates their children, right? For example, Ash and I, we have four kids. Uh, never a dull moment in our house. Um, it's always loud, always a lot of energy, always places to be, always uh, events to go to, Everyone is always hungry. Uh, there's always things to get to. There's just a lot of uh, accommodations that we make as parents to accommodate for our four children because we love them, we care about them, we want them to thrive, we want them to know uh, and love Jesus, we want them to enjoy the things that God has given to us here on this earth. And so we make tremendous accommodations for them. Uh, our routines make accommodations for them. Our home makes accommodations for them. When you have four kids, even our vehicle choices make accommodations for them. No longer can we get cute little fast cars with two doors. We need big honking metal uh, people movers with m as many seat belts as humanly possible um, that get nine miles to the gallon and we make all these accommodations for them, right? Because we love our kids. Um, the Camry doesn't cut it anymore that we drove for many, many, many miles. There's just not enough seats. So we drive excursions. I know, it's crazy. Um, but doing this for our children, having these children, having a heart and a love and a desire to be good mom and dad for our kids 
it is a joy and it is um, something that we don't feel like is sacrifice to make accommodations for them, to love them and to show them along and to change things in our world so that they um, can be a part of it with us. Um, likewise, God, our creator, our maker, has made accommodations for you and I. Um, he works within our limits and our parameters. And he does that through the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ by putting on flesh. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. We couldn't find a way back to God. We couldn't get it right. We couldn't live up to the law that showed our sin. Um, we couldn't live a sinless life like God's law and his holy requirement and righteous standard demanded that we do. And so we needed help. We needed tremendous accommodation. And God, as a loving and good father, saw us, knew us, and knew from eternity past that he was going to make the most substantive, incredible accommodation for you and I in the form of his only son coming to us in the flesh, God becoming man, Jesus our Lord, the incarnation. Um, and so this morning, we're gonna quickly uh, look at Luke 2. We're gonna have Christmas in September here. And so we're gonna look at the birth of Jesus. This is a very common um, Christmas text, uh, but without it, uh, we don't have church any Sunday. So here we go. Luke 2, verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him at the inn. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a great multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So here in Luke chapter 2, we have probably what is the most read Bible verses in maybe all of, all of Scripture. This is probably a toss-up between this one and maybe Psalm 23. Um, and with good reason, because Luke 2 is the story of the incarnation of our Lord. 
that God making accommodations for you and I out of his great love for us and out of the very glory of God that it might be revealed, we see Jesus born and wrapped in flesh, God becoming man, the Christmas story. And this is the text that the entire Old Testament leads up to. This is the text that because of the fall, because of our rebellion, because of sin, because of all the things we've studied in weeks past have been culminating to this moment, have been building to this moment, this anticipation of someone is to come to be our rescuer where we could not find rescue on our own. The entirety of the Old Testament and New Testament, the fountainhead of it is Luke 2, 1 through 20. If you don't know this text, read it, reread it, let it sink in, understand what's happening, let the words Um, soak into your heart and mind. It is the incarnation of our Lord. This is the focal point of our Bible. It is the apex of our Bible. It is the centerpiece of all of human history by which time is divided. The incarnation of our Lord. God does not want us to miss this. In fact, in the Bible, we have more information on funerals than we do on births. There's tons of genealogies over the Bible that says uh, when this person died, when that person died, when this other person died, and who's next, and all these things, right? But here, we have incredible detail. Time, place, who, what, where, when, how, on a birth. It's the one time where we have this individual record recorded in our Bible where we see that this birth has cosmic implications. Here we see that, um, here we see that there is a God and you and I are not him. Um, that we are sinners, that we can't ascend to God. Uh, no matter what the enemy whispers and tells us, God is not holding out on us. God is providing for us. God is giving to us that which we need the very most. So here we see that there is a God, that we are sinners, that our work will not save us. And here we find that God intersects our humanity, right here. And the great announcement is made in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and unearth peace among those with whom he is pleased. He's in charge. He is sovereign. His rule, his reign, because the Savior has come, the one we've been waiting for. So, a few things about the incarnation. So here at the very beginning of this text, we see that the birth of Jesus is historical, right? It's happening During a specific time, we read during the reign of Caesar Augustus, we learn of the name of his steward, Quirinius. That's a hard name, right? It's not easily forgotten. So we learn about the people involved here in a historical context. You can go back and know these people are real in history, in time, in place, in space. So this narrows the time when Jesus is born. This is not a fable. This is historical. It also means Uh, mentions a very physical city in the city of David with very specific people, Mary and Joseph, who all have lineages and histories and families that can be traced and are real people in history. 
So there is absolutely no thinking here, according to our Bible, according to the scriptures, that Jesus, our Savior, is some uh, just some spiritual concept or construct, that he is uh, just sort of moving in and out of time and he doesn't really have a specific place. No, he is in historical time, born during a certain reign with specific parents in a certain place. He is very real. This is God invading history, the Incarnation. And throughout the Bible, from cover to cover, we see this continually happening, that God is involved in human history. That's why the first four words of the Bible are not once upon a time. The first four words of the Bible are in the beginning, God. In time, in a place, in space, in history. It's not a fairy tale, it's reality. And if your heart and your mind and your life is not anchored into this reality, you are living in a fairy tale. So unlike every other account of God invading human history, uh, this one is different. Uh, this is a different type of intersection. Every other story, you get God-like men, Hercules, Titan, right? The Greek gods, this story is not a half God, half man. This is a common baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, placed in a feeding trough because there's no place for him at the end. The incarnation is that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, our hope, became like us in all things. We can't turn stones into bread. He won't turn stones into bread. We can't take ourselves down off the cross. He won't take himself down off the cross. We get thirsty. He stops at a well. Jesus, God becoming man, is born into obscurity. A less than common birth. There is nothing mystic or supernatural about his birth. He comes just like we do. He laid aside his glory he took the form of a bondservant and he was made in the likeness of men. Now, although there's nothing spectacular about his birth when he was born, it is for sure, uh, without a doubt, glorious. This child, this one, was announced by the angel Gabriel. Then a multitude of heavenly hosts agree with Gabriel's announcement and they sing and they worship glory to God in the highest. Why? Because the child is born. He's dwelling now here on earth. He can be seen and visited. So although this one that has come was born in a gutter and what we would call a garage, in a know-nothing town, to a woman of no stature, God gives witness that although he is common, although he is born lowly, this is not just any baby. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. He is our hope. He is the one we've been waiting for. He, this one, fulfills all Old Testament prophecies. This one fills all the covenants that we looked at Last week, he is the fulfillment of all of them. He brings them into fruition. Um, and although God is glorified by this baby, it is clear 
that Jesus is born to save men and women who believe by faith. Listen to this. For unto you, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Then the angels sung the heavenly song, Glory to God in the highest, verse 14, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus is so that men and women could be saved, so that we could be freed from the curse of sin that we inherited long, long ago from our fathers, Adam and our mother Eve, that we cannot get rid of, that we cannot escape. One has come, a greater Adam, that we would have a new Lord, a new Savior, a new one to bank our hopes on Jesus as Lord. In all the places Adam failed, Jesus succeeded, and he is who we claim to now he has come he has come and jesus has come so that we might be saved the scriptures tell us and have peace with god and peace with one another that is a message for right now for you and i our world is desperately searching for peace shalom the hebrew word is We're looking for it everywhere. We're screaming from the streets that we might find it. Um, And we're looking in all the wrong places for it. It comes through Jesus, our Lord. But it comes at a very high cost for him. You and I enjoy it freely by grace alone, but for him, the cost was severe and it was very steep. Um, My grandfather, um, my great-grandfather fought in World War I and uh, he was a trench soldier. And I know this because my mother tells stories about him and when... Uh, he was a trench, trench soldier in World War I. Um, he wrote letters in the trenches and sent them back home. And so we still have all of these letters from my great-grandfather of him chronicling uh, uh, the hell of the trench warfare in World War I. And he writes about all that took place, the constant bombings through the night. Um, he also tells a story that he found a sheepdog uh, while he was in combat And because they spent weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks sleeping in these muddy, nasty trenches, using the restroom in them because the warfare was so intense, uh, there was trench rats that were just all over the place because of all the fatalities, um, the nastiness of those trenches. And so it's hard to sleep because trench rats, he's writing, would crawl all over you throughout the night. He found a dog, a sheepdog. A great-grandfather writes about, and he trained this sheepdog to sleep on top of him in the mud and nastiness of the trench, and this dog would keep the rats off of him while he slept. Um, and I tell you that story, uh, and the combat that he endured and that he fought in, and the bullets that flew, and the, the filth of the trench, and the Uh, hell he endured and went through and walked through and saw and witnessed Uh, because we have days like Christmas and we have days like the 4th of July 
that we celebrate and we cook good food and we should celebrate. They're beautiful days and we roast hot dogs and we cook steaks depending on the celebration. Um, but for those who were involved in the battle, um, freedom and victory, um, freedom that we celebrate um, often comes at a very, very high cost for a certain few. And they don't think as those events as novelties where you simply eat hot dogs and you just gather around a table. They think of the great cost involved in securing such freedom and glory. Uh, the same is true of Christmas in the Incarnation. When Jesus thinks back and when Jesus endures that which he endured, um, it is not all Christmas trees and pretty twinkly lights. Jesus entered into our reality to wage war on a very real enemy, and he won. Uh, but it was very costly. We enjoy the freedoms of it. We enjoy the benefits of it and praise God for it. By grace, we've been saved through faith, through the finished work of this one that has come by putting flesh on and doing what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus did the work. Jesus did battle for us in that we can never do on our own. So when Jesus remembers Christmas, so to speak, he remembers something very different. He remembers the very high cost, like my great-grandfather would have remembered, for bringing peace and grace to men. He remembers vividly when he came to earth and how he reconciled men and women back to God. In fact, Jesus himself tells us exactly what his birth meant later on in the Gospel of Luke. There is no clear text in all of scripture when Jesus tells us exactly why he was born. And it's found in Luke chapter 11, verses 21 and 26. Listen to this. The words of our Lord telling us why he came, why he was born with flesh on in the incarnation. Listen to this. When a strong man... All right, here we go. So Let me set the context real quick before I jump in, because it can be a little confusing. Jesus has been accused of doing miracles by the power of Satan. Jesus has tremendous power. He wields some of that power occasionally to uh, show that he is divine. And Jesus fires back at his critics and says, you've got it all wrong. I'm not Satan's ally. I'm his greatest foe and I've come to do battle against him. In Luke 11, here he says this, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. That's Satan. Satan guards his palace. Satan is strong. He has, uh, he has guardrails around many of us. Jesus says he's strong. Verse 22, but when one stronger than he attacks... When one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him and takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus says, you want to know who I am? You want to know what I'm doing? Uh, you want to know why I'm here? Here's who Satan is. He is a strong man. He is armored, he is, divide, he, is, he is protecting that which is his, namely uh, 
you and I who are not found in Jesus through faith, and there's no way to get out, and he's got us on guard. Jesus says, I am here. This is the good news. I have come. I am the stronger man. I am the attacker. I will go on offensive against this one who has you bound. And I will take this man. I will strip him of his spoils. I will remove his armor and show him as a helpless one. And I will plunder all of his possessions and take back that which is mine. This is Jesus' view of Christmas. This is the incarnation of our Lord. It was a military maneuver on the part of God. Jesus came to plunder Satan and take back that which is his. And he's coming back for us, those of us who are captive in our sin. Jesus has come into our world in a very real way to set us loose from our captor. That's why the angel said to those shepherds that night that he was born, fear not. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. No longer do you have to live in fear. Our Savior has come. He's here to win a victory. And he came in a way that no one expected, brilliant, under the radar, in obscurity, as a baby. But his power was unleashed on his greatest foe. And just like we read a few weeks ago, where we have we, we were shown a window of the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the very first promise that there is one that is coming from the seed of woman, the virgin birth, our Savior and Lord, that will crush the head of the enemy that held us captive. And that's Jesus, the incarnation. He had to be born a man. He had to come as a man to fulfill the promise in Genesis chapter 3. That's what Jesus does. Jesus says, I'm stronger. I've come to crush the head of the enemy and I have fully God and I'm fully man and I'm coming in the most unlikely way, plundering evil and injustice and giving you hope and grace and life. That is the incarnation of our Lord. God put on flesh, dwelt among us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Uh, thank you that you sent a savior Thank you that he come in an unlikely way, but it was preordained by you in the very plan of God. And so this morning we say we trust you. We put our hope in you. God, it was so costly for you, but now you offer us life and grace and freedom by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ who put on flesh, who was crucified on a Roman cross, but conquered death and crushed the head of his enemies that we might have life and have it to the full. In Christ's name we pray, amen.